0: Puttasa Namo at the Sam Pacowato Arahato Samas Namo at the Arahato Samas and Puttasa Putang Kunutarang Upa Namasami So I'm very happy uh, to have this opportunity to meet with all of you this evening. I've only been in Singapore for a few hours, but have already received very warm, generous Welcome. Hospitality is a virtue that is perhaps not given the importance that it deserves in the Vinaya, the God of Discipline, then the Buddha emphasized the importance of bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, making guests welcome. We make people welcome it will recreate conditions for good things. Now, although these days we refer to the Lord Buddha's teachings as Buddhism or perhaps the Dhamma, the Buddha himself referred to the Dhamma Vinaya. So the Dhamma refers to all the truths of the human condition, all the elements of the training of the mind and of wisdom. And the refers to the way in which we create the optimum conditions, for growth in the Dhamma. So it's very clear that the Buddha recognized that the teachings that he was sharing with the world involved a training, and education of all elements of our life, both inner and outer and that there was an organic relationship between the inner and the outer. So one of the misrepresentations of Buddhism, particularly in the Western world has been that Buddhism is overly concerned with the individual and the individual's spiritual development and is lacking in teachings concerning the social dimension of life as a human being in the world. This view has no grounding, no basis at all in the words of the Buddha recorded in the Pali Canon. So the Vinaya is not restricted to the monastic code. But in the monastic code, it reaches its um, most complete expression. In teaching young monks I would often Tell them that there are no guarantees in our monastic life. There are no guarantees that we will ever truly walk in the footsteps of the great Arahants throughout the ages, at least in terms of our penetration of the Dhamma. But from the very first, first day of our life as a monastic we are living within a form every single element of which was designed by a fully enlightened Buddha. So in practicing meditation, many young monastics can, can feel overwhelmed or feel um, guilty, perhaps, that while they are still struggling with hindrances and the same problems that they faced as a lay meditator, lay Buddhists are offering them alms and bowing to them and showing them great respect. But I would tell the monks that simply living within this form we have an immediate, direct connection with the Lord Buddha. That we may even consider the rules, regulations of the monastic order as the Buddha relics, not um, relics that are embedded or um, enshrined in stupas. But these are living expressions of the Buddha's wisdom and genius and they govern and guide every step we take, every movement we make as monastic In lay life, of course, there are many other forces, causes, conditions that come into play. Nevertheless, we try, we should try as lay Buddhists, um, to put effort into creating the best possible conditions we can to aid in our practice of the Dhamma. Buddhism is not teaching us to be passive and to take external conditions as a given and then the which and reducing the role of the Buddhist as to someone who has to come to peace with those conditions. That is not always the case because we are not only conditioned by the society in which we live, but we are conditioning it. Now, although um, we usually, I think, reflect on the way that our meditation practice affects our life in the world, or at least um, I hope we are doing that. At the same time, we should reflect also on the ways in which our actions affect our mind. So this is one of the main areas of study, investigation for us as practicing Buddhists, the relationship between body and mind, how body conditions the mind, how the mind conditions the body, how our actions and behavior condition the environment in which we live, the way that our environment conditions our thoughts and feelings. For lay Buddhists, the Buddha would generally articulate this training in terms of three areas, three elements, that of dana, that of sila, and that of bhavana, or cultivation. And at another famous occasion, the Buddha summarized the teachings, or um, try to communicate the essence of the teachings with a simile. So just as every single drop of water in every ocean throughout the world has a single taste of salt, so every teaching of the Buddha has the taste of liberation. So this is one criteria. This is one way we can examine teachings, decide whether or not they are authentic teachings of the Lord Buddha, the extent to which they promote liberation. So giving is a teaching, a practice of liberation. And the liberation that we can experience through giving is the liberation from selfishness, from possessiveness, from this neurotic grasping at the material world as this is mine. Leave it alone. It's mine. That grasping onto the material world, that attachment, that possessiveness, look at what that does to the mind, how it makes the mind narrow, and rigid, how it makes the mind poor. So this is one of the ironies of the unenlightened condition, that at grasping at wealth, our mind becomes progressively poorer. The poverty-stricken mind surrounded by riches. Because, as we know, however much we can acquire, and hold on to it can never be enough. So when we give um, if we give with right view and give in the, the way recommended by the Buddha then the amount that we give is not particularly important it's the intention with which we give. We can't quantify merit, we can't say we give 1,000 dollars and we get 1,000 units of merit, we give 10,000 dollars, we get 10,000 units of merit. That's um, a basic category error, it's a, a fallacious way of looking at our life in the world. So, when we see the importance of right motivation, then we can begin to understand what happens when we give in the correct way or in the wise way. When we give in that way, we can sometimes feel it. There's a little, it's almost like a death. There's just a, a shrinking of that possessiveness in our hearts. It's just a little falling away of that hard, selfish habit within our hearts. Like a, a, you've probably seen those. Um, documentaries about global warming where you see a bit of an iceberg breaking off and um, floating away into the water. It's a bit like that. Where every time we give that that iceberg of possessiveness melts just a little bit. Now when we give the point I'd like to make here is that in a conventional sense, we have a self. Okay, so the, in the ultimate sense Buddha's teaching is of not self. But in the conventional sense we have a self, or we have many selves. And that sense of self is affected by our actions. So if you make a habit of giving you begin to experience yourself in a new way. You begin to experience yourself as a giver. You experience yourself as someone who has something to give, someone who has something to offer to the world, someone who has something meaningful to contribute to the community and society in which one lives. So there's a great deal of dignity and self-respect that arises naturally through the habit of giving. And it's a discovery. What we discover is when we give with a pure heart with no expectation of reward it feels really good. It's a a happiness, a sense of well-being, a joy. And we need to observe that and remember that. Because every time we give without desire for reward and we remember it we create within our hearts a small treasure. And that treasure can grow and grow why I call it a treasure while the Buddha Called it a treasure, is that we can call upon it at any time throughout our lives. Now, let us compare that with the, on the occasions where all of us, I'm sure, have given with desire for some kind of reward now at the time we might be quite pleased with the results but after that pleasure has passed away time passes when we recall that act of giving we feel unmoved we we don't feel anything in particular now the memory is the emotions evoked by that memory, if they do arise, other kind of emotions arise when we remember some kind of transaction. So our emotional memory is of a transaction. It has no transformative effect on our mind. But if we have given, shared, something with another, with no desire for any reward, even a word of praise, nothing at all. Then we recall that act of giving a month later, a year later, 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later. And that warm feeling of well-being arises in our hearts. It's a treasure. So the more you give away with right view, and I, and I say this is not in any way related to the, um, the amount of money or the, uh, you know, how big a gift it is, it's much more related to the purity of your heart when you give, then you are accumulating a treasure. In the practice of meditation, many meditators become uh, rather obsessed with techniques, um, and a particular technique, and feeling any failure Um, or difficulty in meditation, is a function of technique. Uh, We need a, a, a new trick, a new skillful means to tweak our technique so that we can make the breakthrough that we crave. But if we expand our idea of pavana, of cultivation, And we see that any way of using our mind, such a way as to reduce the power of defilement and to increase the power of virtue, goodness, in our hearts, is a form of cultivation. And we can be um, experimental, we can be creative with this. We don't have to necessarily follow what is in the books but even um, restricting ourselves to what's in the books, um, there is far wider range of meditations that we can draw upon than perhaps many people realize. And one of the most powerful is the recollection of good actions that we have performed in the past, particularly acts of generosity. Now if you're um, upset about something, um, depressed, uh, agitated, or you're in a lot of pain from some serious illness, then many meditation techniques um, become difficult to apply. If you're having respiratory problems, for instance, obviously meditation on the breath uh, it's not going to be a possibility for you. But when we have a, um, like a toolkit of different methods and different ways of working with the mind, then we have a flexibility which is based upon certain fixed, invariable principles. So the invariable principles are that any meditation technique, um, must involve the application of mindfulness, sati, clear comprehension, sampajanya, and atapi, the appropriate or optimum amount of effort. But in the uh, particular reflection, contemplation that we use, then we can draw upon that which is most useful at that particular time, place. So if we find that we are very lazy, then reflection on death is a very good way to start a meditation, period. So if our main practice is meditation on the breath, where we find a lot of reluctance and laziness, then before beginning our mindfulness of breathing practice, we can spend some minutes developing a reflection on death to see the value of our life, the fragility of our life, the uncertainty of our life. or if we're feeling rather down and depressed, or feeling um, lacking in self-confidence, then the recollection of our good deeds in the past is a very powerful meditation. Because when we recollect our good deeds, our acts of generosity, then quite often and easily these feelings of bliss will arise. Great feeling of joy in the heart. And that joy that arises from the recollection of good actions can take the mind beyond the hint the hindrances to meditation very effectively and can be much more powerful than our usual meditation technique. So this is an example of how adopting a certain practice, a certain way of being in the world a certain relationship to those around us replacing an attitude of grasping and competition with one of sharing, giving and seeing um, how it affects the quality of our mind, our sense of well-being and furnishes us with a means of developing wholesome joy at very short notice, in a very short period of time, which is a springboard to the higher levels of meditation. Keeping precepts is also a practice of liberation. At the very least, by keeping precepts, we avoid creating the karma through body and speech that will result in an unfavorable rebirth. So we all make mistakes, we all do foolish things or say foolish things, but as long as we are doing our best to stay within the boundaries of the five precepts, we can always recover our position. We can always remedy our mistakes. So it is an insurance. It is a firm foundation for us, and it is a liberation from um, untold amounts of misery and suffering in the wheel of birth and death. Now, in um, in Ajahn Chah's early life as a monk, he had a great interest, fascination, almost obsession with the monk's discipline. And when he finally met his teacher, Jan Man or Lumpu Man, the first question that he asked was not about meditation as such but about precepts and the monk's precepts. Because he'd been studying or you almost call the the Bible of the Thai forest tradition, uh, which is a commentary on the uh, monk's discipline written in Sri Lanka a thousand or more years ago and translated into Thai in the mid-19th century. And this book is incredibly detailed. And Ajahn Chah um, had... um, Read this book in great detail, reread it, and he'd finally come to the conclusion that it was just not possible to live by the rules in this extremely complex formulation. So he he wanted to ask Lumbhunmin, what's the best way for a monk to uh, practice to keep all of the rules in the correct way. And lumpuman said to him that there are really only two things that you need to worry about. And those two things in Pali language are called hiri and otapa. Now these two words are, are, are a real challenge for translators, particularly translating Pali into English or into European languages. Because the words um, in the most simple formulation uh, will be translated as shame and fear. And in European languages, these words are have so much baggage, so many associations. Um, which are not pleasant and they're bound up with the Western culture and its indigenous religions. And it's very difficult to separate um, the Buddha's meaning of these terms uh, when we translate them in that way. But when we uh, examine the meaning of these terms, um, it can be, I think, very um, surprising, perhaps, but also enlightening, in a way. But the Buddha explaining uh, what he meant by otapa, Let say otapa first. Now, I, I've translated this before as intelligent fear, but uh, I've finally, recently decided to change that to a healthy fear, and in particular it's it's a healthy fear of consequences. So you've probably observed in your own life, when you're about to do something um, and you know it's not right, There's one part of you says, this is really foolish, this is not right, and then there's another part of you that says, shut up. I don't want to hear that right now. Don't be such a wet blanket. Don't be such a spoil sport. Leave me alone. Go away. I'm going to do this. I deserve it or something like that. So that, that um, override mechanism, which is where you have that initial prick of conscience and then it's uh, overridden by this sense of be quiet, go away, I don't want to hear this right now. That's, that override is the opposite of the healthy fear. It's an unhealthy lack of fear. So this fear, although it's an emotion, is cultivated and it's cultivated by a systematic reflection on the law of Kama. So again, there are meditations and contemplations where we don't want to use the thinking mind at all, meditating on the sensation of the breath or, or sensations throughout the body, body sweeping meditations. These are meditations where we want to put the thinking mind aside altogether, but there are other meditations where we can make use of our thinking power. It's a gift. It's not a. Um, it's not an enemy as such. And reflecting on the law of karma, and um, looking at our own experiences in the past and the uh, actions and experiences of those around us or even those in the news um, allows us to see clear patterns, correlations when certain kinds of actions have certain kinds of results, certain kinds of speech have certain kinds of results, they have consequences. And dwelling upon, reflecting upon consequences of actions until it becomes a mental habit is an extremely important cultivation. So this is not one which is aiming at samadhi and jhana but it's aimed at developing right view and an immediate and emotional bulwark or protection against unwholesome impulses in the mind. So, um, when the impulse to do something, to say something um, unwise, cruel, harmful, dangerous, destructive, arises in the mind, then Otapa arises automatically. Why is it automatic? It's automatic, it's there, it's fluent, it's ready because we have put the time and effort into thinking about the law of kamma, reflecting upon it in a systematic way. And then um, the fear of consequences um, arises, and it's just not worth it. We stand back from this desire, I want this, I want it so much, I've got to have it, I've got to have it right now. And Otapa says it's not worth it, it's going to cause suffering for yourself, it's going to cause suffering for others. Um, It's going to have consequences in the short term and the long term. It's a betrayal of your, your principles, then it's going to lead to all kinds of problems in the future. So, you refrain. So this is why it's a healthy fear of consequences. It's not brainwashing yourself, but it's based upon observation and learning about experience. Now, just now I said that ultimately um, our life, our body and mind are without any independent, self-existent entity called me. In other words, it's selfless. But on the conventional level, on which we lead most of our lives, we have a conventional self. Um, so if, I, um, if I'd have arrived at Bangkok airport this morning and at the <clears throat> um, police check, uh, refused to give my passport and said, that's meaningless. It's just a dream. All you see before you are the five khandas arising and passing away according to causes and conditions. They wouldn't have let me on the plane. Um, So um, the wise person recognizes when to um, adapt to conventional labels and uses them skillfully. And it's in our life we have many conventional identities. We have an identity as a son or a daughter, grandson, granddaughter, as a brother, as a sister, as a parent, as an employer, as an employee, as a citizen, as a member of the human race, as a Buddhist. So many different identities and we reflect on these identities. Again, we give ourselves some time to reflect systematically. Okay. What does it mean to be a good son or a good daughter? What, is, what? How can I be a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister or a parent in a way which expresses my ideals, expresses all that I find good and noble. And we reflect on those that we look up to and take as role models and examples and inspiring figures in our life. And we develop a cluster of perceptions and ideals that become very clear in our mind. And then when we are about to act or speak in such a way that directly conflicts with those freely adopted ideals and um, aspirations and standards, that sense of um, conflict Expresses itself as a sense of shrinking away. Just as we shrink away from something that smells very badly or something we find disgusting. It's not. It's. um, Initially, it's based upon thinking. But the thinking uh, develops into a habit and it's there right in the front of your mind and when you're about to say something or do something, there's this immediate sense of that's, that's disgusting. Maybe it's not expressed, you don't verbalize it, you don't say to yourself that's disgusting, but you, you find yourself shrinking away, just moving backwards from it. So this is what we call intelligent or healthy sense of shame in the Buddhist teachings. And the Buddha said that these two qualities of hiri otapa, healthy fear of consequence, healthy sense of shame, based on um, systematic wise reflection or yoniso manisikara, are the foundation of our sila, whether we're monastics or lay people. Now, A few more words about Sila because I think it is a topic often misunderstood. Most uh, systems of morality um, are based upon an idea of an omniscient being, a god, gods of some kind, who lay down laws and they forbid you from doing certain things and threaten to punish you if you do them. And then give a list of good things and say they'll give you a reward if you do them. So it's a reward and punishment system based upon a belief in a heavenly being who has devised this system and has the power to enforce it. Now, in Buddhism, uh, we we don't look at it in that way. We look at it is um, how does our body work? How does our mind work? What is the relationship between them? How do you make changes in your life? You know, we all know how we should be. Everybody knows how they should be. We should be kind. We should be honest and. We should have integrity and we should be unselfish and we should be this and we should be that. We all know. We could all write down a list of the kind of people we should be. And if we were to compare them all, they'd probably be very similar. But that's not our problem, isn't it? Our problem is not that we don't know how we should be. Our problem is that we're not like that. So um, in Buddhism, the main question is, how do we... How do we progress? How do we move from being how we are now towards how we feel we should be? And the Buddhist answer to this is, we start off with what we've got right now. Don't start off with some idea that you try to model yourself upon. But start off with right now. Why if you're, unself- if you're selfish, why? What are the causes and conditions? What's going on? What can you do right now? What can you do today um, to improve things? And so the Buddha pointed out um, that we have um, this quality within us of self-discipline. We are not completely the creatures of our instincts. We do every day decide not to do certain things. We say no every day for some reason or another. So we have that capacity within ourselves and that is the foundation for the training in Sila. Now we cannot make a decision to be kind. We cannot make a decision never to get angry with anybody ever again because now we're Buddhists and we're disciples of the compassionate Buddha. If we do make that kind of decision then we'll fail and they'll be full of self-aversion and lose our confidence in our ability to transform our lives. But that's based on basic misunderstanding of the way our bodies and minds work. So what we can do, and this is not at all idealistic, it's completely practical, we can individually or as a group, as a family, say, look, my mind is full of impurities. I get angry, I get jealous, I get greedy, I get selfish. Um, And uh, I'm working on those things. It's a long-term project. I'm trying my best. But right now, I promise you that no matter how angry I get with you, how irritated, how if I lose my temper, I will never hurt you. I will never hurt you physically. I will never abuse you verbally. And that is, the Buddha said, that is the greatest gift that you can give to the people around you. He called it uh, Mahadana. So it's not just ordinary Dana, it's, it's great Dana, it's Mahadana, because what we need more than anything else, what we all want more than anything else, is to feel safe. And when you take that first precept, you are giving the gift of safety and that freedom from fear to all around you and that's the most beautiful gift and you're not only liberating yourself from that compulsion to act upon those angry and cruel but you're giving all those around you the liberation from fear. It's a beautiful thing that we can all give immediately right now, today no matter how spiritually developed we are or undeveloped. We can all just make a decision. Even if I feel angry I'm not going to hurt anybody. So this is, this is the power of Sila. We use our ability, our inherent, our human gift of refraining from actions that we feel are wrong or inappropriate. Now when we act in a certain way again and again and again It develops a habit. It becomes easier and easier and easier. So just as if you lose your temper with somebody once, then second time is easier, third time is even easier, and before long, it just becomes your habitual response to certain stimuli, certain situations. You can create a counter habit of not expressing. It's as simple as that. It's nothing mystical. It's nothing incredible. It's just very basic common sense that um, even the most violent and cruel person um, is merely following a habit. There's not some inherent quality of cruelty. It's just someone who has acted cruelty, spoken cruelly, again and again and again, perhaps not only in this life, but in past lives. So it's not a matter of denying some inner essence. It's a matter of very patiently creating uh, the habit of not acting in that way. And if every time the impulse to act or speak violently or cruelly is not acted upon then it's starved of of its um, fuel and so it's like a muscle if you have a muscle and you don't use that muscle you're laid up in bed with some illness that muscle through lack of use will atrophy and the habit of acting Badly, in whatever way, atrophies simply by not acting upon the impulse. Something else happens. When you have that precept not to hurt very much in the forefront of your mind, then when the impulse to hurt arises, that counter impulse not to hurt pops up. And at that moment, you wake up. That's a moment of awakening, a moment of liberation. Moment moment when we are liberated, freed from that blind, unconscious habit. And look what happens. Observe what happens at that moment that you wake up. Not only do you wake up, you're suddenly conscious of yourself, but you're conscious of your values. What's right? What's wrong? What's appropriate, inappropriate? All of those considerations become possible once you waken up in the midst of action. And you wake up in the midst of action, you become mindful in daily life, by your recollection or your mindfulness of precept. And when that mindfulness of the precept is based upon and strengthened by hiri otapa, that healthy fear, healthy shame, then you have a real um, powerful means to make serious changes in your life. But that practice and the physical level, the level of conduct cannot be um, carried on, cannot be sustained without the simultaneous development of the mind. In particular, the cultivation of all those virtues that directly oppose the unwholesome impulse. So in this case, uh, mindfulness uh, plays a major role, of course, in the, in the uh, practice of reducing, eliminating anger. Before we get really angry or we lose our temper, there is always some um, warning, physical change takes place on a low level, some feeling of tension in certain part of the body, some uh, tensing up. Now if you're observant and you tune into that and you're present enough, then as you get those first uh, physical manifestation, before there's any thought in the mind, you can let go. Very, very easily because it's still a very weak expression. So mindfulness of the body gives us a very effective early warning system. By the practice of metta and compassion constantly reinforcing and developing this sincere wish for beings to be happy and free from suffering, then that thought becomes more and more natural to us, arises unbidded automatically in everyday life more and more because it has been systematically developed at appropriate times. So when the desire, the wish for beings to be happy arises and is developed and um, appreciated, then the contrary impulse to create suffering, to hurt, um, has less and less opportunity to arise. But we also need patience, and the uh, ability to bear with unpleasant, the tension when you don't do what you'd like to do. So, Lumpur Sumedho, who is here um, not so long ago, he has a wonderful translation of Kanti, this virtue, that is the peaceful coexistence with the unpleasant. So, patience is not like gritting your teeth and looking at your watch and how much longer till it's over. Um, There's it an element of peace and acceptance of what is unpleasant. So, those, those are uh, three of the virtues. Samadhi, when the mind has experienced some um, inner peace, inner rest, inner clarity, then the coarser emotions um, become, become experienced as coarse and the mind turns away from them. But ultimately, this training is one where we need to. Uh, be using our wisdom faculty and seeing uh, the extent to which unwholesome and destructive and toxic emotions are based upon uh, certain uh, misunderstandings, assumptions about the nature of the body and mind. So when the mind is more calm, focused, we turn the light onto the mind itself and begin to see the arising and passing away of all the elements of our life which we formerly assumed were properties of something we call me. And we begin to see that um, whereas in the world of common sense, uh, before you can have um, something which is uh, owned a property, you have to have an owner. So the owner comes first and then the sense of something being owned comes second. But in meditation, what we can observe is that at the moment a phenomena arises in the mind, at that moment there is no owner. There is no sense of ownership. And that the sense of being the owner of the body and the mind is something that arises afterwards. It's something we create. And in the Pali language, they have these words me making, mine making. So we make the sense of me, we make the sense of mind, we, we add it onto the flow of phenomena. And so in, in practice, ultimately, uh, we're, looking, we're learning how not to, not to make. So it's not a matter of getting rid of ego or getting rid of this or getting rid of that, um, so much as not creating it in the first place. And and this is where the um, liberation, true highest liberation comes, the extent to which we can see that it's this idea of an owner of experience which we create through lack of awareness of what's really going on in the body and mind. It's in letting go of that that the very base for all of the defilements falls away. So in the in the old story of the man walking home at dusk through the jungle and sees this huge snake lying across the path blocking his way home and he feels anger, fear, anxiety so many different negative emotions sees no way to get home then the moon comes out from behind the clouds and he sees that that big snake is in fact a big length of rope. It's not a snake at all. Immediately, uh, all of his negative emotions disappear and he walks home with a smile on his face. So the analogy here is that um, our problem is this thing on the road, which we assume is a snake. We assume is the self. But when the light of wisdom emerges from behind a cloud, then we see it's not a snake at all, it's just a rope, it's just a a piece of nature. And we we find liberation there. So it's liberation through seeing, through knowing. But before we can see, we can know in a way that cuts off the defilements, we have to create the foundations. The foundations through creating a sense of um, self-respect and love and liking for ourselves. that comes about through um, regular acts of generosity and kindness, comes about through um, being able to live our lives and conduct our lives within the boundaries of the precepts which we adopt voluntarily, not because we've been forced to. And when we are able to um, take the mind beyond the pull of the five hindrances. So it is, in other words, a a holistic, organic uh, education of our life, one which uh, must be um, must be carried on um, all areas, all elements of our life um, simultaneously. It's just that at any one time, one element, one um, particular part of the training may be at center stage and the other parts of the training may be supporting from behind. But in every um, Every step we take are upon this path of freedom and liberation, uh, we need this threefold training um, in its fullness and maturity. So, I would like to end the talk this evening at this point. Thank you.